So Alan Detlaff is a professor at the University of Houston College of Social Work. And Kristen Weber is the Senior Director of Child Welfare at the National Center for Youth Law. And so in this conversation, we actually we're thinking about it as sort of like a follow-up to the conversation that we had with Joyce McMillan and Aaron Miles Cloud about foster care abolition. And so, so I asked Kristen and Alan to come and join us, particularly to talk about abolition. It's about dismantling, tearing down the harmful systems, but it's also building up what our vision is and what we want to see is to replace these harmful systems. So I wanted to ask, just if you can just tell us what brought you into this work. Um, just tell us about like your stories. And so maybe, Alan, if you want to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here with y'all. So I started in this work working for the child welfare system in Fort Worth, Texas, which is where I went to school. And I actually became a social worker because I wanted to work for Child Protective Services. And it was really like one of those light bulb moments for me where I I said, wow, that's really the kind of work I could do. I could really help children and families. I changed my major to social work. I did my undergraduate internship in Child Protective Services. And then I went to work for the agency for about six years and did investigative work the entire time I was there. I investigated cases of maltreatment and then supervised a unit of um, investigative caseworkers and realized at that time that while I was in the agency, no one ever talked about racial disproportionality or the overrepresentation of black children. No one talked about the harms of foster care. And I really started to learn about that and come to understand my own complicity in harms that I caused to children and thinking back on the fact that of the children that I forcibly separated from their families, really most of them didn't need to be removed, but I was caught up in what I think of as a culture of removal, where that's just what everybody's doing. The removal is the solution to every family's problems. And I was able to think back, not only did those children not want to be separated from their parents, they loved their parents, even in cases where harm was occurring, they wanted the harm to stop, but they didn't want to be separated from their parents. And I also realized of all of those children that I removed, not once did any of them ever say, thank you so much for removing me from my horrible abusive parents. That literally never happened. In fact, when I would go back to visit them, all they wanted to know was when they were going home. So that really changed my perceptions about the system and really coming to understand the biases that are inherited in the system. Kristen and I got together and some other colleagues and started talking about what we could do about this. And we realized, and you've probably been in these situations where you've been talking about the same thing for 20 years and nothing ever changes. I had put you know, 15 years of work into the system trying to reform and the levels of disproportionality, the amount of black children in the system had not changed at all. It was all for nothing. And that really got me to think that the reason that all of those reforms never worked is because they never addressed the foundational harm of the system, which is forcible separation. I think of it as saying reforms try to ask the child welfare system to do the impossible. They ask the system to remove children in a way that's a little bit less racist, a little bit nicer to families, a little bit more palatable to community members, and you just can't do that. Family separation is harmful no matter what. And that led us to then thinking about what abolition would look like and studying the abolition movement in the broader prison policing abolition movement and then applying those ideas to child welfare. Hey everybody, I'm Kristen. I grew up in Virginia. She, her pronouns. This question is, I think I could have answered it in a really linear way about a few years ago, but life is muddled. And when I really reflect on it, there's like aspects of the personal as well as the professional and how I got to where I'm at now. So I was born in West Virginia and was relinquished for adoption and ended up 15 months in West Virginia's foster care system and had multiple placements as an infant. And because 
I was mixed racial, or I am still mixed racial, and there are only white foster families, and they all complained about how hard it was to have a mixed racial baby in their homes. Not because, and when I looked through, I got my files. When you look through the files, it's apparently I wasn't doing anything wrong, which is nice to know for an infant. But I wasn't doing anything wrong. It was the community itself wasn't able to handle this. But so the narrative around me was that I was a child that nobody wanted. And, and I was like this big, really chubby baby, right? When you look at this picture, and there was a stash, it's what the, the description is, a stash of mixed racial babies in West Virginia that nobody wanted. And my mom, who adopted me, was a white woman who was very desperate to adopt and was really super excited. And she was in Boston at the time. And there, were, there was a stash of single white women that nobody wanted to place children with. And so they all networked and found these babies in West Virginia. And that's how we got matched. But when you look, like years later, when you look at my files, the black side of my family never knew I existed. There was no effort to connect me to family. This was a very like, shameful secret that a white woman carried, right? And when her mother saw me, like it's all part of that sort of shame of this. And so the, the idea of child saviorism and removal, I think, was a big part of my childhood. Now, I put that away, right? I, was, I grew up with a family of teachers, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do something with teaching, maybe. I ended up finding my way into law school. And in law school, I was just like, I just wanted to do something with kids. And the more I got into it, the more I, re I started doing some direct service, and I represented kids in a variety of different settings, in foster care, juvenile justice, special education, probate legal guardianships. I had a special sort of practice of kids who were impacted by HIV AIDS. And the themes were the same in terms of like people coming in and wanting to improve their lives by removing them or disconnecting them from their communities and their homes rather than really working at the material conditions and also not recognizing <coughs> love. Like what does love look like and the language of love and how that looks different in different communities. Because I worked with teenagers pretty ex much exclusively, you really do see what Alan was talking about. None of them are saying, I wanna be yeah. permanently disconnected from my family. What they're saying is I need help and that the help that is being offered isn't the right kind of help. And one of the worst cases, and it was the first case I ever had as a young lawyer, one of the worst cases was just the most extreme sexual abuse you could imagine. And this young, this girl was removed from her home and kept running back home. She just kept escaping and running back home because she wanted to protect her siblings. She was deeply connected emotionally to her mother. So then what happened to her was she just kept getting more and more isolated and moved further and further away incarcerated for her protection, right? So it was just the work of severing was just done as opposed to the work of unifying. So again, like I was just burnt out. I couldn't, there was these things where you'd get this sort of trauma, you know, what was it, um, self-care, right? And which I have a whole bunch of problems with, but so it's on me to like alleviate this and, and treat my self-care. But I remember the thing they said to do was just touch a tree and leave your, leave your worries at the tree, but don't bring it into your house. And, um, and so I was in San Francisco and I was, and my, and my roommate came home and I was, I was on the tree and I, and I couldn't get off the tree. 
And he was like, come on, Kristen, we got to, like, I was like, I just, I'm supposed to leave my trauma here and I can't leave it here. I'm stuck. So I needed to stop, right? And so I made my way into um, more macro level work thinking I've, I want to sort of see what's available here. And all I did was focus on racial and social justice. What can this mean? How can we really get at structural and institutional change? And I spent a lot of time doing what was called an institutional analysis, where we were an analyzing what is a particular population. In this case, I mostly looked at black kids. But what does a particular population need? What is the system set up to deliver? And what accounts between that, for the gap between what they actually get and what they need? What I saw was that, that the child welfare system or the family policing system is where reforms go to die. Mm -hmm. Alan and I had been working on a something specifically to support LGBTQ youth and, and LGBTQ youth of color in the system. And we did, we reflected and we were like, we really made a nicer system. People are using yeah. people's pronouns and somebody got help getting clothing that was appropriate to their gender. But they were still in a group home. They were still isolated from their family. They were still placed miles away. They still weren't reunifying, right? So it wasn't, we weren't solving the right problem. And that's why we're like, we're, that's done. I think a lot of times people, when they talk, think about alternatives, they immediately start thinking about specific programs, specific interventions. The same with youth justice. People start thinking about like these programs that you can pull people out of the system, almost like one young person at a time. But when we are talking about like creating sort of a new model or a new sort of a new system, really, it's about much larger structural changes. What would replace child welfare? I'm going to plug Alan's book, which I have a chapter in. But part of this book is really the unfinished work of abolition and really tracing back to the, in the times of slavery and that really abolition wasn't just about ending slavery, but building a new society. And Du Bois talks about abolition democracy and new relationships, new institutions, and that didn't happen. And that's part of what we're talking about when we talk about abolition is really this newness, this new, these new relationships, these new structures, these new, basically the way that we're really coming after capitalism too, right? And the idea that there are people that are exploited and that there are people, it relies on people being oppressed to some degree, right? And so really, what does this configuration look like? And we really feel like we can't talk about alternatives or like these new structures without going back to the historical roots and honoring what happened and what didn't happen there. I think that's the important idea that first to understand that we're not, abolitionists are not advocating for a new system or really alternatives. We're advocating for a new society where the idea of forcibly separating children from their parents would never come into existence because it's so repugnant. And the idea, like Kristen said, is really based on this concept of abolition democracy, where the idea of, the original idea of abolition was never solely about the negative aspect of tearing down slavery. It was much more about the positive aspect of building a new society where black people had full liberation, political, social, economic capital. And that never happened. As I was researching this book, we came across a speech from Frederick Douglass, who after emancipation, left the South for a time and came back to the South 
south about 20 years later and saw the conditions of formerly enslaved people and denounced the entire abolition movement. He said that the enslaved people had been the victims of a cunningly devised swindle and said that the abolition movement was a stupendous fraud upon the world because he said that although nominally free, black people are still essentially slaves. And we saw that happen. After emancipation, slavery was just replaced with debt peonage, convict leasing programs, and today what the prison and policing and child welfare systems do. So the goals of abolition, this new structure, new society with real liberation, has never happened. So our work is about addressing issues of capitalism, because as long as there is capitalism, there is going to be poverty. As long as there is poverty, there's going to be a disproportionate impact on people of color and systems that pathologize individuals because of their poverty, rather than looking at poverty as a societal failure. 70% of children in foster care are in foster care because of neglect, which is largely associated with poverty. And then rather than addressing material needs, if the system was set up for to help people alleviate their poverty, it would address those material resources, but it doesn't. The way the system looks at poverty is if a parent needs daycare, she doesn't get daycare, she goes to parenting classes. If a parent is struggling for food or income, she's not provided with that. She's sent to budgeting training and nutrition classes. And if she disagrees with that plan, then she has to go to counseling. And if she's mad about the plan, then she has to go to anger management classes. But like all the while, the actual needs that brought them into the system are not just unaddressed, the system doesn't have the capacity or resources to address that. The system has no means to address poverty-related concerns, but yet it continually removes children for that. And I'll just add the wisdom of the youth, right? So I was at my stepdaughter's high school graduation and um, a young woman, the, the speaker, was a scientist and was talking about this concept of escape velocity and. I'm not going to do it justice, but basically you have to, there's a specific velocity you need to escape the Earth's gravitational pull. And that is in the child welfare space. It's like the racism and the anti-black racism. You can't, there's, we don't have, we haven't reached this escape velocity. So what Alan is describing, people, you just get pulled back into punishment, yeah. surveillance, social control. And our concern, so Alan and I and others in the abolition space are using language like imagine, reimagine, build, and it's being taken by others and used to do new things, but it's not reached escape velocity. So it still has punishment, yeah. surveillance, and social control to it. And so that's when we are thinking of alternatives or new structures. We are. We want to end, we want to reach escape velocity, right? And get into new places. And we don't 100% know what that's going to look like even because we're trapped right now by this imagination of what is as opposed to what could be. Yeah. Yeah, Julia. What about for the 30% that aren't neglect-based? So your example of severe sexual abuse, like how, what do you put in place to ensure that the child is protected or safe in many ways when it sounds like they weren't safe at home. Yeah. 
I think of that about that question in two ways, in, in a macro, like a big picture sense, and then in a more micro individual way. Mm -hmm. I think on the macro side of that, when people say, if there's not a system, what will we do with the children who are abused? I think to myself, that's, in some ways, that's not the question we should be asking. Rather than asking what would happen to the children who are being abused, we should be asking why do we live in a society where children are horribly abused by their parents and what can we do about that? What I think about is this idea of shifting power from the state to families and communities. So imagine your family, imagine like the bigger, broader network of people that you love and care about, and imagine that a child in that network is harmed by someone else in the network. What would you want to happen? Would you want to get together as a family and as a community and figure out what needs to happen to protect this child? Or would you want to, the state, the government, to take that child away from you and figure it out for themselves? I think most people would want that first option. And if you want that option for your family, then you should want that option for every family. And if you want that option for every family, then that's abolition.